You're listening to episode 27 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the magical tales of Zatara and Zatanna. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I'm proud to welcome my favorite relatives to the show. Okay, maybe I should clarify. They're not related to me, but they are related to each other, and you can hear them on the Relatively Geeky Network. Making his return to the show, Professor Alan Middleton, and appearing with her father for the first time on Secret Origins, Emily Middleton. Welcome to the show, both of you. Hello. Hi, Ryan. Thank you so much for being part of this. I'm, I'm really happy to have you guys on the show. We are glad to be here. Well, Secret Admirers, you can probably surmise that I brought this wonderful father-daughter combination onto this episode because we're talking about DC's most magical father and daughter combo. And I don't mean Trigon and Raven. <laughs> I mean, also, you, have to, you have to clarify occasionally. You know, there are some parts of our relationship that on, hey, look, they were, they were, there were some tough years when Emily was a teen. Some I'm, rocky I'm, days. I'm just going to say. But we no are portals in the bathroom. <laughs> We're talking about Zatara and Zatanna. But before diving into their stories, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Secret Origins podcast and you're not sure what it's all about, well, Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And this issue breaks from the usual format a little in that we get origins of three different characters, but all strung together in one multi-chapter narrative. So, Emily, since you're new to the show, you get this question first. What is your experience with either of the characters, either in comics or other media of Zatara and Zatanna? Well, I think like most people of my age who are into comic books, it all started in the early 2000s with Justice League, the, t- the uh, animated TV show, which mm-hmm. introduced me to the entire DC universe, pretty much. That's where I get the majority of my sort of personal canon for DC characters, who's important, what the relationship dynamics are like, all of that sort of thing. I did actually meet Zatanna before this point, just barely. Because she appeared in one of my favorite uh, miniseries of all time, Identity Crisis. Mm. So, in a controversial role, indeed. 
But for me, like Zatanna has sort of always been one of the more important mystical characters. And with my personal interest, I like the sort of mystical weirdo characters of the DC universe. So she's always seemed sort of in that top tier, even though she's a fairly unknown character in like general comics knowledge, I suppose. In the, the very practical sense, this I've heard this with bands. I think it might be true with comic books as well. Is that when you're laid out, you start with the A's. You know, the comic book store is la- the record store. Mm-hmm. You get the A's, then you B's. Then it's going to take a while till you find Zatan and Zatara. It's true. Yeah. Unless you're like me and you just sort of stumble across them exactly. at random and exactly. go, oh, that's a pretty cool concept. But usually, you know, somewhere around the T's or the U's, Underworld Unleashed, you sort of, okay, I'm done. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I give up. Okay. <laughs> Professor, where did you first discover these characters? Uh, probably a Zatanna in the Justice League runs of the late 1970s, where she was a, a pretty active part of the team, early 80s, that era. And in terms of Zatara, I really just knew him as part of Zatanna's backstory. Yeah. And it really wasn't until, I don't know when it would be, where, where he would have been making appearances and then sort of getting interested in the history of comics, maybe a reprint of Action Number 1 or something, when you realized, wow, Zatara was there from the beginning mm-hmm. of, of really the, the DC age, at least in terms of, of the superhero era. And that really does say something for, I suppose, for me, that I did not know that Zatara existed probably until about four or five years ago. And I was uh, just reading through some story and it mentioned Zatanna, daughter of Zatara. And I was like, that's really weird to give a character a backstory and give her father the exact same name as her. Before I sort of realized, wait a minute, no, he came, like he actually did come first. Yeah, and in many ways she was kind of the the rebooted Silver Age version of her father. Mm-hmm. Like in, during the Silver Age when you got Barry Allen was the new version of The Flash. Hal Jordan was the new version of Green Lantern. Well, in the 60s when they created her, she was kind of conceived to be the new version of Zatara. But instead of making them a distinct separate world version, she was a legacy character. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm sort of in your camp, Emily, in that... I mean, I I started reading comics, really getting, like, experiencing DC Comics in the early 90s, but I wasn't reading a whole lot, and what I was, Zatanna wasn't really there to be found in that era. Um, So I I kind of saw her first in, like, an episode of Batman, the animated series, Mm -hmm. and then when I started getting into DC in the mid-2000s really aggressively, Identity Crisis was one of those first books that I read, and I was Mm -hmm. astounded by how powerful she was and the way that she was used in that story. So Mm -hmm. I've I've always liked her from that. That's the thing is there's people who would – sometimes when I I sort of talk about mystical characters with other people, they'll be like, oh, yeah, like Dr. Fate or something who's Mm -hmm. like a big heavy hitter. And I'm always like, Zatanna who can like warp all of reality – Oh, okay. Okay. You have no idea who that is. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> you know, part of the problem might be uh, with, with a lot of the magical, mystical characters in general, is how powerful they are, or how powerful they can be. Yeah. You know, you really have to come up with a story that makes that work, or come up with a device whereby they can't say their magic words or speak backwards or whatever it is that they have so much power, it, potentially. Yeah. And I think these. These two, Zatara and Zatanna, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but they they sort of undercut their own power 
or the perception of their own power, they make themselves seem a little bit smaller, a little bit more pedestrian, because their gimmick is a stage magic show. Right. You know, yeah. that, that certainly seems like, oh, their, their real specialty is sleight of hand tricks, whereas mm-hmm. a Doctor Fate character, Doctor Strange, is traveling to mystical realms and battling dragons and like demon monsters and everything. And it, th- their adventures seem more grand than Zatanna and Zatara that are just doing illusions. But right. you see that that's really just almost part of their day job disguise. Yeah, yeah that, say, that is all, the illusion. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm so there. They're real magicians whose uh, whose secret identity or who are passing mm-hmm. as stage entertainers. Yeah, listeners, uh, the professor already mentioned that Zatara was there from the beginning, so I'll give you a little bit of their publication history. Zatara did indeed debut in Action Comics number one, and while he was never as popular as the book's star, Superman, Zatara continued to appear in the book until issue 141, published in 1950. He also appeared in the first 50 issues of World's Finest Comics until 1951. He was a constant throughout the Golden Age, but after that, he only popped up occasionally in Silver and Bronze Age comics, usually in stories featuring his daughter Zatanna. Zatara is one of the few comics characters to receive an on-screen permanent death, even though permanence is pretty fluid (laughs) when we're talking about mystical characters and comic characters in general. But he did die in Swamp Thing issue 50 in the presence of his daughter Zatanna, as well as Dr. Occult and John Constantine. Zatanna's first appearance was in 1964 in the pages of Hawkman issue 4, Her quest to find her father would span six different comics published over two years. After that, she starred in backup strips in Adventure Comics and Supergirl. Finally, in 1978, she joined the Justice League of America. She stayed with the League during the Satellite Era and during the Justice League Detroit days. After the Crisis on Infinite Earths, Zatanna faded a bit, only appearing a handful of times in the late 1980s and early 90s. She did have a four-issue miniseries in the early 90s, but her most noteworthy appearances in that decade was probably on an episode of Batman the Animated Series. After that, Grant Morrison used Zatanna in his Seven Soldiers of Victory series, and Paul Dini returned to the character with an ongoing series just before the New 52. And since then, she's largely been associated with Justice League Dark and the Constantine series. Uh, Was there anything I forgot or anything major that I left out of that history? No, we mentioned identity crisis, yeah, and and I think that her history in general is long enough. I think she can take Justice League Detroit off the resume. I mean, I'm just saying, there's enough other stuff. <laughs> Do you really need to include that? I'm just saying. That's the unpaid internship of this metaphorical <laughs> resume. You know what? The, All due respect. The CW TV shows are going to bring that show back to prominence. We're getting <laughs> right. We're finally Vixen, getting some respect vibe. for Vibe and Vixen. Before you know, they're going to have a standalone Steel show, Commander Steel. <laughs> hey, as long as it gets us Elongated Man. That's all I need. That's all That's all, all we're looking I, for. That's all I want. I'm there with you, a Nick and Nora type of... Uh... <laughs> all right, folks, we're going to take a short promotional break, but don't go away because we'll be back in a minute with some stories of magic and the arcane. Men and women known as 
Hey there, my name is Al Girding, and I have a favor to ask. If you're a fan of the Justice Society of America or other DC Comics heroes of the Golden Age, please listen to my new podcast, The All-Star Comics Review. Grab your reprints, DC Archive Editions, or the original comics if you're lucky enough to own them, and let's explore the adventures of the JSA and other Golden Age greats. Follow along with the All-Star Comics Review podcast, coming soon. Secret Origins issue 27 is cover dated June 1988 and cover priced at $1.50. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the issue would have actually hit the streets on February 16th, but the price didn't change, unfortunately. The cover was by Tom Artis and Doug Hazelwood. Professor, what do you think of this cover? I like it. I, I like sort of the idea of the double feature magic act, the sort of sandwich boards with their names and everything. Mm-hmm. The only problem I have with that is that it makes the trademark symbol after their names really stand out you know, on that white. So it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. These are actually intellectual properties owned by DC Comics, a subsidiary of Warners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just covered a Tom Artist book on your uh, Quarterman podcast, didn't you? Tailgunner yes. Joe? Yes, yes. Yeah. That is a very strange book. <laughs> Sounded like it from your review. <laughs> uh, the other thing on this cover is that, and this is no way, in, in no way the fault of the artists, but we have mentioned identity crisis. And that is that Zatanna looks exactly like Sue Dibney does. It's really freaky. Yeah. I couldn't figure out what it was because I was looking at her and just thinking, I don't know who that is in Zatanna's costume. But it's not Zatanna. It's one person throughout the whole thing, regardless of her many, 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 many costume changes. <laughs> but I have no idea who that is. And then uh, my dad pointed out, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a Sue Dibney. Oh, my gosh. Because I'm certain what happened is that when Identity Crisis rolled around, <laughs> in, the, in the back matter of that, Rags Morales talks about all of the actors and actresses. Yeah, the inspirations. Dis- yeah, the inspirations. And Zatanna was Don Wells, a Marianne from Gilligan's Island. And I'm just sure that's what Tom Artis did for this one. And I'm confident that he used, you know, a, a lifelike, realistic model mm-hmm. because Zatara is 100% Clark Gable. Oh, yeah. There is absolutely no doubt about that. Right. So I'm certain that he just, you know, plucked another actress to model Zatanna based on and then... 15 years later, years later yeah. 20 years later, Rags and Rowless pulled the same trick. They are both insanely leggy. Yes. Well, I, genetics, I guess. Yeah, I guess. But that's <laughs> that's like, part of being a homo magi, I, I guess. guess. Got bitten long, by long a legs. radioactive praying mantis. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the matching outfits. You know, they're in the same you know color schemes. And it's not the, you know, the black and white. Sort of almost stereotypical stage magician. Right, right. Yeah, the, the yellow Much more vests, colorful, I yeah. I don't know if Zatanna ever appeared in this outfit after this. Her appearances after Crisis on Infinite Earths, right around this time, she was in a... She was in a couple issues of a Spectre series. The Spectre had a book after that that she appeared in. And then in in 19, right around this time, right after this, she had a special one-shot that was published... And for part of it, she was back in her old fishnets costume, and the other part was in the 
the superhero costume that George Perez had designed for Justice League of America. So I don't know if this was something that they were like they were trying to redesign, give her a more contemporary costume, put her in pants, but I don't think yeah, this I wonder if it lasted. was just yeah, it seems to me it was probably just an attempt to sort of visually connect the two characters as much as anything else. Any last thoughts on the cover? I really like it. Aesthetically, I dig it. I really like the sandwich boards. And for some reason, it strikes me as, I don't know, appropriate that uh, Zatara is conjuring bats and doves and Zatanna has some form of eldritch abomination (laughs) with like 18 eyes in her hat. But she looks really happy about it. And that's what counts. This is why you don't mess with Zatanna. She can summon Cthulhu. (laughs) And do it with a smile. Every everything she says backwards sounds like Yog Sogoth or Rakia. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, getting back to the issue, Mr. Mark Wade edited this book, which, as I mentioned earlier, tells one big story that encompasses multiple origins. The whole shebang was plotted by Roy Thomas and Eric Weiss, and scripted by Robert Lauren Fleming. The first and third chapters were penciled by Tom Artis, inked by P. Craig Russell, and lettered by Gaspar Saladino. The second chapter was penciled by Grant Meehan, inked by Fred Fredericks, and colored by Duncan Andrews, while Gene D'Angelo colored the issue. The secret origin of Zatara and Zatanna, better known as A Symphony of Shadows, begins, as most good performances do, with an overture. On the island of Mont-Saint-Michel, off the coast of Normandy, France, Zatanna walks through the rainy streets thinking about the song Night on Bald Mountain. Her father, John Zatara, used to play the song during his stage magic performances, timing his act to the music. Zatanna turns down a dark alley and is beckoned into a nondescript yet foreboding building. Inside, she finds a man bound strangely to a pillar, strangely because his hands are separated and even the amulets around his neck appear to be restrained. A second man, whose identity is hidden from the reader, and from Zatanna too, says the captured man is named Namo, but Zatanna recognizes him as Dr. Mist of the Global Guardians, and she's not happy about his circumstances. The unseen enemy challenges her to raise her strongest mystical shield, which proves to be not at all strong enough, as he separates Zatanna's soul from her body and sends it into Namo to hear his story, which begins 7,000 years ago. The first movement of A Symphony of Shadows is titled Once Upon a Time. Namo tells Zatanna how he was the wizard king of the African city of Kor in the year 5000 BC. Namo's power came from the mysterious source called the Flame of Life. As the flame's chosen disciple, Namo used the power to make Kor a prosperous and peaceful empire, the rival of ancient Atlantis. One day, a traveler named Felix Faust arrives in Kor. Faust demands to know the secrets of the Flame of Life, but Namo informs him the flame speaks only to its one disciple. In that case, Faust says, I must become the new disciple, and he stabs Namo in the back. Desperate and dying, Namo calls the Flame of Life, asking for all the power he needs to avenge himself and destroy Felix Faust. With this new supreme power, Namo and Faust engage in an epic battle of magic, casting spells to attack and counterattack for more than a week. The collateral damage inflicted on Kor is catastrophic. At last, Namo realizes the only way he can defeat Faust is by sacrificing Kor, which he does. He banishes his enemy to another dimension, destroying the once mighty empire in the process. 
By channeling the flame of life, Namo became immortal. For thousands of years, he ruled over different kingdoms, always outliving his friends and lovers and children. By taking on the flame's power, Namo had elevated himself above Homo sapiens to the state of Homo magi. If he could pass this on to others to elevate the entire race, he would no longer be alone, and he could create a new utopian society like Kor had been before his battle with Faust. Using the power, Namo created the Stones of Life, a set of precious jewels imbued with mystical energy. Giving these stones to his most worthy followers, Namo trained recruits in the ways of magic and sorcery. After hundreds of years, Namo took most of the new trainees to northern Turkey to form the hidden city of the Homo Magi. Those adepts who did not go into hiding would use their power to shape human history in various ways. The ranks of Namo's students operating in the world included Marco Polo, Christopher Columbus, Vasco da Gama, Cagliostro, Leonardo da Vinci, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, and Benjamin Franklin. All of these agents worked to mold Earth into Namo's perfect image. But while Namo was creating the Homo Magi, his ancient enemy Felix Faust was also gaining in power. Brought back to Earth by a mad magician named Deacon Drock, with some helpful inspiration from the ominous melody of Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries, Faust returned amidst the chaos of World War I. To combat Faust's ever-growing evil, Namo used the power of the Flame of Life to create champions of magical order. These heroes included the Order of the Seven and their agents Dr. Occult and Rose, as well as Sargon the Sorcerer. And most promising of all, Namo tells Zatanna, the descendant of Leonardo da Vinci and Cagliostro, who, in the end, was best known by his stage name, Zatara, Master of Magic, her father. And that ends the first movement. Emily, what did you think about this first part of the story? It was very interesting. This sort of high fantasy, mystical, magical epic battles of good and evil. I am totally down with that. So this story really spoke to me. In the overture, I really liked the opening page, that it was just Mm -hmm. so moody and atmospheric and dark and cool. I really liked the sort of tone that that set. I like Z's uh, yellow poncho raincoat thing. I'm not sure exactly what that is. I kind of liked it. It's cute. I'm just throwing that out. I thought we were going to learn the origin of the Morton Salt Girl. (laughs) <laughs> yes. I like the, the last panel on that first page with the door creaking open mm-hmm. and that hand with its finger just beckoning him in. It looks like the cover to, I don't remember if it's House of Secrets or House of Mystery. It's one of those old horror magazines. So. I thought this was solid. I thought that P. Craig Russell was a good choice for inking in this section because you know he sort of does that fantasy stuff. That's one of his strengths, fantasy and magic elements, mm-hmm. uh, um, from my understanding of, of him. And in a lot of ways, despite this being ancient Egypt, it really is a fantasy setting. It's a modern, magical, ancient world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very uh, Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. Like this is this is one of the African kingdoms he would wander into. Exactly. Or yeah. I mean, there's yeah, there's yeah. some high there's some high technology going on here. There's he does have an airship. Wait, you can't <laughs> argue with that, and a pet lion. So that's pretty cool. I thought there were a few odd moments of not totally sure at the top of page three, the second panel there where Zatanna's sort of striding and turning. And I'm just not sure exactly that body position. The anatomy is suspect. Yeah, just a little odd or the clothing and the skirt or something. But I like the raincoat. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it took uh, me a little while to to identify the, what was going on with her shirt. Like, are those like bow ties on the on the sleeve of her sweater? Think so, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I also had a shout out about Nomo, who mm-hmm. is uh, revealed to be the alter ego, I guess, of Doctor Mist. Yep. That he did show up in an episode of Constantine. That there was a very very brief cameo in the episode Feast of Friends where John goes and meets with a, a sort of a shaman and his name is Nomo and they, they go on a spirit trip, like a uh, trip together. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the drug is called mist. Ah, nice. A little Easter egg in there. That's cool. so a little, little tiny Easter egg. So no Zatanna, sadly, <laughs> but we did get Nomo. So. And I believe this was actually the first time he was named Nomo because Dr. Mist before the Crisis on Infinite Earths reboot only appeared like five or six times with the Global Guardians. And I think he was just referred to as Dr. Mist. I don't think they ever went into his story. So this part of the backstory was a completely new fabrication that they okay. created. And he is yet another doctor of the DC Universe with no apparent degree from any accredited doctoral program. <laughs> Mr. Fate. <laughs> Mr. Occult. Right? They all, like all the, all the magic characters, they're just... Meanwhile, you've got a character like Victor Freeze, who has several postgraduate degrees, I think, and he's still called Mr. Freeze. Or Harley Quinn, yeah. who actually has a medical degree. Yeah. Well, you, you know, I would not trust any credentials from any universities, especially in the DCU. I just, I'm not <laughs> sure that. They're all suspect. I'm not sure about the accreditation process there. I do like the, that this. Or I did notice that this section, and it sort of sets the tone for most of it, that it is almost all exposition. Mm-hmm. You know, once we get this little conversation going, right. every there's not a, barely a speech bubble. <laughs> you know, the rest of the issue, uh, certainly not through this part. You know, you're hearing the story being told. Well, they got 7,000 years of history to cover. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> they, can't, they can't stop that, for some witty dialogue. That is going to take a while. <laughs> I mean, the key element to this first section is this separation of Homo sapiens mm-hmm. and Homo magi. And it's interesting that you have these, in essence, two species developing yeah, some, side by side. Some parallel evolution there. Yeah. But it's weird. Yeah, what, what I'm getting is that we as humans are basically the no accounts on this planet. You know, it's a coincidence that, gee, every, not just a few of the great thinkers, Every great thinker, every discoverer, every inventor just happens to be homo magi. And I guess we are, I don't know, the chopped liver of this planet? That was a little annoying after a while. I like the concept mm-hmm. that there are these, these parallel species. That's cool. Mm-hmm. But the explanation isn't very well fleshed out. Like, Mm-hmm. Did Homo Magi predate Dr. Mist, or was he the first of that and he was making more? That was not really totally explained, at least not in a way that I understood. And uh, yeah, then all of the implications are kind of a little problematic. Right. Like, you know, humankind didn't do anything for itself. All of the great explorers and thinkers and mathematicians and politicians were all mystical beings. He didn't That's- name drop Aristotle. I'm going to assume Asteri- Aristotle was still one of us. Okay, we can, we can claim right, Aristotle. Okay, there you cool. go. 
And of course, some of the bold, greatest ideas that humanity's ever come up with have been a little on the evil side. <laughs> and he doesn't mention any of those either. It's just, it's everyone who's, who's not just smart and bright and inventive, but also, you know, on the good side of the ledger. Or maybe he's just skipping over. Yeah. <laughs> skipping over some of those other ones. I was also a little bit not quite sure of whether he was saying that Homo Magi was essentially a Homo Superior, mm. like just inherently smarter and more evolved, or if they were just the people that were able to harness magic. And if so, does that mean all of the magical characters of DC are these Homo Magi? Because I'm just going to say this, John Constantine ain't. <laughs> like there is... If being homo, homo magi like gives you this inherent mystical control over supernatural powers, John Constantine does not have that. He's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, this felt like they were trying to create a unified theory of magic within the DC universe. Mm-hmm. Which you can't do. To, uh, well, yeah, you it just does. can't do it. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> I mean, we've kicked around, Emily and I have discussed, kicked around the idea of the DC sort of spiritual side, the cosmology, as opposed to the magic side, obviously related, but a little bit different. And you can attempt to put some things sort of coherent together, but obviously it wasn't intended to be. Right. That is the nature of a retcon. You know, you're overlaying this after the fact and, you know, it's it's okay. I like the concept. I like the boldness of the concept, Mm -hmm. but... The execution and, as we sort of said, the implications right. are unusual. And Zatanna and Zatara did, did have that connection. I mean, that was part of their history that had come before right. yeah. this connection to the Homo Magi and the, the secret city that we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit later. But trying to presume that you know Dr. Mist was responsible for all of this and that he fathered all of these different, in one form or another, not just great <laughs> thinkers, but all of these other mystical heroes from DC's pantheon. I'm not going to judge, but he hasn't done a great job (laughs) looking at the state of either the DCU or the real you. You know, if he's been spending 7,000 years molding us to be the best and the brightest, at least least an incomplete. I'd maybe go a little lower than a C minus (laughs) two. We'll come back to this in the final movement. In the closing, there's a little bit about his uh, maybe not so great planning. Yeah. It's also given him a whole lot of credit considering that he's not a popular character. Like most people probably right. never heard of him before. And and and, and you know, so in, in theory, I, I don't mind magic as a genetic trait. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think this is maybe taking it to a Roy Thomasy yeah. extreme to yeah. make it make sense. In terms of the art, um, it's decent. I mean, Tom Ars has some like weird expressive angles, and we talked about the anatomy a little bit, and I think the inking probably helped restrain some of that. When we get to their magical battle between him and Faust, I think it's kind of boring. It's just different colored lines flying around. I think the panel construction is pretty pedestrian and just sort of simple. He really could have broken things up a little bit more. My favorite pages in this section are... Uh, the 12 and 13 combo when we get the the images of all of the different secret homo magi like Cagliostro and Thomas Jefferson and Leonardo da Vinci. And that's probably just because he was looking at pictures of them and the art is, uh, is pretty reflective of that. And then the image of World War One and the chaos of the battlefield, mm-hmm. right. yeah. uh, which I'm trying to think, is that is that a cameo of the enemy ace playing at the top? Oh, of- wow. The red, yeah, the, oh. could be. That is going deep. 
I would not be surprised. It's Roy Thomas. I would not be surprised. You know, I, I look through Comic Book DB, and there's something like fifty plus, you know, identifiable characters in this book. Oh you yeah. Know, we'll obviously get to more in the next two sections because, like we said, it starts at Action Comics number one <laughs> and goes through whatever the current day of this book is. So you've got fifty, sixty years of history that were right. that were. Uh, Compressed exactly. into this one issue. And so you've got a ton of named characters, identifiable characters. So. Right. But that's all I got for this first section. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Uh, just that who, whoever the actual writer or letterer or whoever mistitled Wagner's ride yes. of the Valkyries as March, March of the Valkyries. Of yes. the Valkyries. Yes. I thought it would be too pedantic if I pointed that out. Oh, I'm so here for I'll you. So I'll let Emily take care of that I'm here for one. you. Well, because as soon as I saw Wagner happen, I'm like, oh, dad's going to be – oh, okay. Yeah, I think I actually – I wrote it correctly in my notes when I was doing my summary. And I was just <laughs> yes. like, hey. I, like I, don't, I don't think that's the right title unless he did a second piece that I don't know about. <laughs> I was going to say, if we the want – The sequel? If this is the – Electric uh, this, Boogaloo? This, <laughs> Valkyries 2, Lost in New York. <laughs> Dawn of the March of the Planet of the Valkyries. <laughs> All right, folks, we are going to take another short promotional break, and we'll be back in a second with the second movement. Aw, yeah. yeah. Uh, 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 feels good. The time has come to enjoy myself. Hello, greetings, and hi there. This is the Head Speaks Podcast. Hey there, true believers. Welcome to the Task Force X Headcast. G.I. Joe, the real American Headcast, is the code name for Aaron's daring, highly trained Headcast. Hello there. My name is Aaron Moss, and this is the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour. This is my show called Alexis B. And all of these shows can be found on the Headcast Network. Look for it on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Also on Facebook by looking for the Headcast Networks. All of the great Headcasts that you love on one convenient feed. Look for it. The Headcast Network. See you there. Summer night, everything I wanna have, whenever I 
We're back, continuing our look at the secret origins of Zatara and Zatanna, with the second movement from A Symphony of Shadows, The Length of His Sleeve. This is the story of Zatara, master of all magicians, descendant of Flamel, Cagliostro, Nostradamus, and Da Vinci. We begin our story with the young Giovanni Zatara, begrudgingly accepting a gift from his grandfather, all of the tools and tricks of his old stage act. Giovanni becomes a stage magician himself, but he isn't very good at it. Until one day, when he stumbles into a magic shop, or rather a magical shop, run by one Dr. Mist. Mist slips a book secretly into Giovanni's backpack, along with all of his terrible purchases, a book created by one of his ancestors, Leonardo da Vinci. From this tome, Zatara learns the secret of backward spellcasting, and when he saves the crowd at one of his shows from a backstage fire... A hero is born. This was in the 1940s, and as the world plunged into war, Homo Magi were unable to directly take on Hitler thanks to his possession of the Spear of Destiny. So Zatara battled spies and saboteurs on the home front, criminal masterminds, and eventually joined with the All-Star Squadron. But now, Dr. Mist began to feel restless. All of this orchestration had still left him unfulfilled. I felt like God on the seventh day. What was I going to do for an encore? All right. All right. Professor, what did you think of this section? Well, I thought the synopsis was awesome. <laughs> oh, thank you. Do I just pat myself on the back there? Or? I mean, the, uh, I, I, I do like the fact that the genes, not just the magical genes, though this may be part of it, the genes definitely run strong in the Zatara family because the grandfather looks just like the adult Zatara will look. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's Magic clones. <laughs> but I, I actually really like the fresh-faced young magician Zatara that we get on page, you know, six, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. I, I I really like that he really does look like a younger version. I mean part of it he doesn't have the mustache, right. the hair, the hair is isn't gray, but I, I thought that that was pretty uh, a pretty skilled way of portraying the sort of young adult version of Zatara. And of course Roy Thomas manages to throw in his beloved All Star Squadron mm-hmm. and the World War II heroes. I really enjoyed this. You know, it's it's kind of simplistic, which I don't think is a bad thing. This is the story that I think is probably retconned the least out of the various overtures that mm-hmm. really all that's done is add a little bit of background to Dr. Mist and make him slightly more proactive in the story. But otherwise, they don't change a bunch. I did like the brief shout out to the other Golden Age mystical heroes who were swiftly forgotten. Mm-hmm. Quote. <laughs> I think some of those guys, uh, Tor and the Merlin, I don't even think they were owned by DC until this point. So mm. I, I'm not sure right. what books those actually appeared in at first. I know there are notes about that. Um, I'm sure one of our listeners can tell me where they appeared. But yeah, interesting that he even considered using them. Well, not really. I mean, if you know Roy Thomas. It's Roy Thomas. Yeah. So <laughs> there, there's no question why he chose to put them in there just because he could. But I, I do like the All-Star Squadron. Mm-hmm. The page on on page twenty five, the panel, especially the, the magical handshake mm-hmm. with uh, Zatara and Sargon. Yeah, I mean it's it's a simple story as you pointed out, but I I enjoy it. The art on page nineteen when he's doing the saw in half trick, and we get a close up of his face, and then he's splattered by the tomato. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if this was intentional or not, but... It every... looks like he messed up and cut her in half. Exactly. Because that is exactly what I thought happened. I was like, oh! 
Every time, every time I look at this page, I'm like, oh, he did it wrong. He did it wrong. He cut her in half, and she's bleeding all over. And I was like, no, it's a tomato. They're booyahs. I don't know if that was intentional or not. I, I think I it probably was. But... Think it was intentional, but, but it is. It is hilarious. Is what it is. <laughs> and I'm, I'm also not sure about the career path of I failed here on the small stage. I got to go to Manhattan. <laughs> it's like no, you actually go the other way. You actually okay. I, now I need to go to. Someplace even smaller. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to go the other direction. But you're, hey. you're not quite ready for off-Broadway, so <laughs> go to Broadway. <laughs> I like the uh, – I, I, I did like the uh, Dr. Mist's uh, pop-up magical bookstore. Mm-hmm. Hey, this wasn't here yesterday. I'm going to go in anyway. <laughs> Let's just say John Zatara might not have the best decision-making capabilities. I'm just saying. Just going to point that out here. The Spear of Destiny was a nice little yeah. trick that they, they came up with. I'm trying to remember. That might have been a Roy Thomas invention, or maybe that was from Jerry Conway and uh, Paul Levitz when they were writing All-Star Comics, when they took over to sort of explain why none of these powerful superheroes ever took down Hitler during World War II, mm-hmm. that he had this sort of magical source that protected him, so they could only fight uh, you know, fifth columnists and bundists okay. and the Ratsies on the American shores. And they certainly found plenty of them somehow. <laughs> they did. They did. What did you think of the art on this section? I thought it was clearer. Mm-hmm. I think this goes a lot to it being a retelling of a Golden Age story, that it has that very sleek Golden Age look, but it's, it's pulled off well. So it doesn't look as cartoonish as some Golden Age books can occasionally look, that everything is still pretty well detailed and interesting and well-drawn. Um, they've got some good angles going on, and the fire that uh, Zatara saves everyone from is you know, pretty well-drawn, things like that. But uh, it's, I, it's nice and simple, which hmm. is, is honestly a compliment. Yeah, but I do like, I mean, you have changed from you know that retro, modern, ancient, technological era of that first, you know, that first section. And, and here you are really in the real world. And so I, I think mm-hmm. the art is a little more real world-ish. There is a change, yeah. but I think the change makes some sense. Yeah, I I don't think Grant Meehan was a, a knockout artist, but he's got a pretty clean, simple, mm-hmm. enjoyable to look at you know, style. And I, I always kind of am intrigued whenever I see his name pop up because he did one of my favorite issues that had a Black Canary fighting Solomon Grundy. Mm-hmm. In a, a Justice Society of America miniseries, um, it was a name I was not overly familiar with. He's not. I mean, I don't think he's done that much, but mm-hmm. I mean, I think Roy Thomas probably liked him for what what you guys described that the way he sort of just channels the the clean simplicity of the the Golden Age, and that's what Roy wanted for a lot of his mm-hmm. his stories in Secret Origins. And you know, this was about a I don't know ten or twelve page section that takes a while to read. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't take long to summarize. You know what I mean? I mean, so again, it sort of has that – you've run into that a couple of times with Secret Origins. Right. Especially, especially with Roy's desire for words, you know, really that, that old school mm-hmm. approach to comics. Mm-hmm. All right, listeners, we are going to take one more break. Don't go away because you don't want to miss the third movement. Justice League International. Blah, ha, ha, podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order, 
tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort! And many, many more. Justice League International. Blah ha podcast. Coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? We're back with the coming of Zatanna. Professor? Dr. Mist was at an impasse. After the All-Star Squadron disbanded, he created the Global Guardians, but his main coup was matchmaking Zatara with Cindela, a union which resulted in Zatanna. Sadly, Dr. Mist was hoping for a boy, but still, her midichlorians were off the chart. Having fulfilled... I'm gonna... I'm gonna... <laughs> No, what? we're done. We're done. That's in <laughs> essence. That's what he's. That's what the Homo Magi are. Nope. Nope. We're done. That's right. This is why I have weird feelings about them. <laughs> They're Episode One Jedi. That's what. That's what these magicians are. It's true. All right. Uh, you can keep talking. I'm gonna call Shag and see if he can pitch hit on this. But but keep going for now. <laughs> Wait a minute. Zatanna. She's hot. <laughs> Oh, we're good. Okay, good. You've had your... Thanks, Shag. Thank you. Good work. Having fulfilled her breeding duties, Dr. Mist banished Cindela to her homeland, and Zatara was cursed never to see Zatanna again after her 18th birthday. But he tried. Oh, how he tried. In her classic outfit of fishnets, bow tie, and top hat, Zatanna was trained by the Hawks, the Adam, Green Lantern, Ralph Dibney, and finally, John Constantine. Training. Is that what they're calling it nowadays? I ship it. I ship it. I don't care. <laughs> I ship it. I ship it. Dr. Mist's final training for Z involved fighting her father with the help of a mystical sword and the Justice League. She ended up joining the team. History was repeating itself. Or maybe Dr. Mist was just repeating himself. Using their combined powers, they found Cindela but she was possessed by the medulla stone and could not be saved. And then Zatara was killed by the shadow creature during a gathering of all the powerful mystical beings of the DCU, as we mentioned in Swamp Thing 50. Then came the Crisis on Infinite Earths, which gives us a chance to witness Roy Thomas doing some metacritical commentary. As Roy, oh, sorry, I mean Dr. Mist, describes the crisis as a lot of fuss over nothing. Not everyone agreed. <laughs> no, Roy. Not everyone agreed. Though, in retrospect, Roy may have been right. Wotan, using his pawn Adam, began replacing Zatanna's body with his own, which according to the irredeemable shag, is not hot. But Wotan was eventually defeated by the intervention of the Spectre, who was also able to release Zatara's spirit. Because we've said, when your magic, dead and dead, don't exactly mean dead. And then, after listening to Nomo's endless monologue, Zatanna is released, and she knows who has brought her there, and what he wants. Bum, bum, bum! 
At last, Felix Faust stands revealed. His agenda is the same as it was 7,000 years ago. Dude, pick up something else, another hobby. He wants, <laughs> he wants the flame of life. He casts Zatanna into Namo's mind because he could not penetrate Nomo's psychic defenses on his own. But if Zatanna found out where it was, he could pull it from her memories, or so he thinks. Nomo tries to free himself, tries to protect Zatanna from Faust's magical attacks, but he doesn't need to. Zatanna is far more powerful than either of them realize. She tells Faust the flame no longer exists, that all the power was spent ages ago in creating the Homo Magi, and together a fully powered and redesigned Zatanna and Dr. Mist stand off with Felix Faust. He doesn't believe their claims about the flame being diluted, but he isn't willing to fight them both right now to prove it. He just escapes. And later, Zatanna is left alone on the streets of Mont Saint-Michel, thinking about Night on Bald Mountain again. Thinking about the musical power of magic, and the magical power of music. And thus ends the secret origin of Zatanna and Zatara. Alright, getting back to Zatanna's story, what did we think of this section? Well, I like the idea of Z and Constantine, as, as Emily would put it, OTPs. The one true pairing. But so that because of their magical natures and long lives and all that, it just can never really work out. And for Zatanna's sake, I really wouldn't want it to work out. Actually, for Zatara's sake, I wouldn't want it to work out either. (laughs) Nobody wants John Constantine marrying into the family. It's not a good idea. There's something about in that Swamp Thing 50 issue, the reason that the dad is there yeah, it's yeah. because he will not let Zatanna and Constantine be in the same room together Without unless he's there with them. Yeah, yeah Zatara wasn't even invited to that seance. No, he was not. She'll, he's like, yeah, you're not going to sit in a room with my daughter holding her we hand. We call that being a good father in this family. <laughs> I'm not sure that's 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 what I call it. Well, Oops, would... Emily, we've lost you. Sorry. Sorry, you're you're breaking up. <laughs> Well, you wouldn't you wouldn't leave me alone in a room with John Constantine. No, 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 no. That's a bad idea. I wouldn't leave a dog alone in a room with John Constantine. It's a bad idea. Well, I love him. Given his only appearance in this issue, happens to be a panel of him shirtless and apparently pantsless. He's wearing a scarf. <laughs> And you know it's the 1980s because not only is John Constantine tall, mm-hmm. but he looks exactly like Sting. Yep. And it's really yeah, that surreal. Was, yeah, that was the, the look back then. John Constantine's not tall. Tall Constantine is weird. I'm like, no, he's a tiny little punk. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a punk ass bitch. <laughs> he's got the Sting slash David Bowie look going on. Yeah. You can even even behind the curtain, you can tell the big hair. That's yeah. right. Um, on the first two pages of this section, Professor, this is where you were talking about all of the named characters <laughs> yes. that appear in this. Whew, yeah, we're going to get a lot of images of Global Guardians and All-Star Squadron characters. and Just yeah, just draw as many people as you can. That's exactly what it, what it is. Here's a list of potential characters. Draw the ones you can fit in here, okay? Thanks, bye. Right. I do like uh, New Daddy, his look on the bottom of 27. He's look like he's almost crying because he's got his new girl. He's so baby, he's so baby, she's so cute. I actually do like that page. And then Sindel is off to wherever. Yeah, well, you know. I'm fascinated by Zatanna's origin because it was spread out over multiple issues told over several years. Like, right. 
I, th- I think Gardner Fox was the one who created her, and he had the patience to tell her story of trying to find her father in five different comics. Like, she started off in Hawkman, and then Batman, then the Atom, and then Detective and Green Lantern, finally culminating in a Justice League of America story that brought all of these characters and storylines together. Uh, the fact that they let him do that, like, mm-hmm. so slowly over that period of time yeah. was pretty impressive. I do like the page. It's next to the one with Constantine. She appears to be doing something magical with uh, Ralph behind her. And yeah, I like that. She's sort of in, in yeah, fighting pose. Yeah. I really like the art in a lot of this section. I think it it's serviceable. Mm-hmm. Again, sort of like the previous section where it was all clean lines and sort of simple poses in order to be very golden age. This feels like a modern comic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, but I just sort of appreciate the way that you can really feel a difference between the two types of storytelling. Unfortunately, I think that this section with Zatanna really suffers from real true story syndrome because it is really convoluted. And I really like continuity, but stories like this, where you're trying to summarize and synthesize a story that has as many fake outs mm-hmm. and twist turns as this does... It's complicated in not necessarily a great way. Mm-hmm. Like, I like the concept behind this, but it is not simplified at all because it's Roy Thomas. And so he has to make note of every single thing that has happened in her history and her continuity and just put it all together. And right. there's a lot of, and she was abandoned by so-and-so, except it was for really for this reason. And then her father was dead, but he wasn't really. And let's show you how he was not really <laughs> dead because then he, and I'm, yeah, a, lot of, a lot of explaining. I mean, there. You know, one of the drawbacks of telling this, in essence, as he said, one story over whatever this ends up being, 38 pages or something like that, is that it ends up being sort of a long story and not necessarily in the good way. Yeah. Uh, As opposed to if it had been sort of the traditional secret origins issues that you've been doing, you know, a couple of 18 to 20 page stories. Again, there's, you know, almost not a single dialogue, you know, in this. It is all, I mean, you are all listening to... Summary yeah, of previous issues. It's like yeah, the oral report. Is it, what it's a it's a fully illustrated entry of who's who. Yeah, I, yeah. My notes say it's a fully illustrated Wikipedia entry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you're right. I mean, I I certainly would have wanted to spend more time fleshing out the two marquee characters, Zatara and Zatanna, but we get the first half of the book dedicated to Doctor Mist, who. Is a cool character. I wanted to learn a little bit more about him, but it just it sucks up a lot of the oxygen of this story, and all we're left with is just recaps for these origin stories right. instead of right. telling real stories. And I mean that that happened a lot with this series. I mean it was yeah. a fact that they couldn't let any bit of continuity go when it's Roy at the helm. And it is tricky to tell a compelling story, or in this case, you know, a couple of compelling stories while you're telling origin stories. And this is a little bit reminiscent of the Warlord episode that I did mm-hmm. um, with you, but I do think this is better. But in essence, if you remember, that one was you're in essence, it's telling the story of someone who knew Warlord, right. his perspective on Warlord. And that to some extent, that's the setup for this story, right? It's not, yeah. it's not Zatan and Zatara's story. It's someone else telling you the story of Zatan and Zatara. Right. So there, there's there is a weird remove. You know, there's a weird disconnect. You're you're separated just a little bit from the story because it's you're hearing it second, third hand. But I do think the frame is interesting. I almost wish this had, this had sort of been two issues that it had been a two part. There had there mm-hmm. was one story of 
like Dr. Mist's backstory with maybe some other mystical character mm-hmm. and explaining the homo magi and doing all of this weird Nostradamus background. And maybe even getting weirdness. into Zatara a little bit. He's the one we know a little bit less. Yeah, maybe. And, and then have Zatanna have her own issue because there's a lot that happens in the 12 pages that she gets and it is rushed. I mean, but again, part of it is, you know, Roy is, he's limited by what he has. You know, we also did uh, Adam Strange. And the Adam Strange origin story is really straightforward. So retelling it in Secret Origins was really straightforward. Wait, was Dr. Mist, I, I want to I see a little bit more from this guy. I want to do more, but just making him this, you know, pillar, this sort of originator of the magical community without ever seeing him before and him never being a prevalent part Maybe that could have been rethought a little bit. Uh, he needed a costume revamp, yeah, yeah, like badly. And actually, there was a there was a character who was in the Justice League in the early '90s, like around the time of the death of Superman, named Bloodwind, which, which is how you know it was in the '90s because his name was Bloodwind. And I'm pretty a y. sure Wind had a Y, right? Yeah, yeah. Wind had a Y. Yeah. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and uh, let was, me just say, I'm so put glad two that I, nouns, put them together, misspell one of them. And, it's and, the nineties. Let me just say, I'm really glad I couldn't read in the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely he was intentionally enigmatic. They wanted to draw out who he was for a long time. I'm ninety five percent sure it ended up being Martian Manhunter. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. right. Yeah, but I think if that had just been a costume redesign for Doctor Mist. I think I would have liked that character a lot more because he did have a pretty simple, straightforward costume look, um, and it it does have this like sort of dark magical quality to it that would have been fun to see. And Zatanna has plenty of old costumes lying around in this issue. She does, and that was something <laughs> else that taken I one of those. I don't think that she wears the same costume for more than five <laughs> panels at any point. Do either of you have a preference for her costumes? I like the black and white classic. Mm-hmm. With the fishnets. With the fishnets. The tuxedo top hat. with the fishnets. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's sort of the classic. I, I really like that. Occasionally she gets the like tuxedo pants mm-hmm. and the fishnet gloves. I'm also pretty right. okay with that. Yeah. I like this. For a little while, again, it's when I was reading it originally, early 80s. Sort of, there was sort of a lavender long pant look mm-hmm. as well. That wasn't bad. I don't like this one on page 30 and 31. It's a the little, red cape and the... It's a little Power Girl. Yeah. The Cinderella outfit. It's her mom's outfit. Yeah. I think I kind of like that one more than the the superhero costume that she had from the satellite era of the Justice League. The one that Roy... Uh, not Roy. Uh, George Paris redesigned, I think. That was the one that she was wearing in the flashbacks in Identity Crisis. I think I might like her, her mom's Cinderella outfit more than that. But... <laughs> I No capes. No capes. <laughs> I will take just about any other outfit, provided it doesn't have a, a cape. Well, certainly since in the last couple of years, like with her in her appearances in Seven Soldiers and then in Justice League Dark, she's had more of the sort of goth black leather bustier right. look in the, the fishnet sleeves instead of the pants. Any final thoughts on the issue as a whole? For me, again, there's the one problem with it is that there's not a lot of present action. Yeah. As in none. Right. There is in the present we have a lot of talking, a little bit of action, I guess. The very you know the end. There's about a page and a half of a little magical fight, and that's about it. And so against the nature of a frame story, and you sort of have to understand that going in. But it got a little long. Yeah. 
yeah. it got a little long. I agree I with think, that. I think I liked it. I did like it. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed it. I am glad that I read this issue. It had a lot of cool cameos that I appreciated. Right. John Constantine, obviously, but also the Spectre and mm-hmm. some of the other mystical, magical beings and Dr. Occult and things like that. But I just, I can't quite get a handle on mm-hmm. what I wanted out of this story or what this story wanted to be. And it's ambitious. I give it that. Very. I mean, attempting to come up with a frame in which all of these magical, mystical characters sort of make sense and are sort of coherent and cohesive is noble. <laughs> it's ambitious. I almost feel like this story could have been three parts. Could have been mm. the overture and the first movement with Dr. Mist as mm. the framing sequence. Both Zatanna and Zatara's stories told in one piece mm-hmm. and then maybe had six or seven pages at the end to wrap it up because mm-hmm. it wraps up really, really quickly. Yeah. And there's like a, a dropped little reference to Dr. Mist actually isn't as powerful as he's been claiming and he's gone mad with power and all this stuff that he was talking about didn't really happen. And I'm There's just, a great potential story there. Where's like, that there's, story? There's a really interesting story there of him lying to them for the first third of the story, their backstory, and then the last third explaining, no, he is just kind of a fraud. But they don't actually explain that, and they don't say how much of that was bullcrap. So I like to choose that pretty much all the stuff about, and every great person ever was a homo magi, because I am the best. Yeah, it may be a little bit of patting him, patting his own. Patting himself on the back. Smoke and mirrors. Yeah, it it is misdirection. There is misdirection. Which is why it's an interesting concept, but it just doesn't quite gel together, right? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the concept of a magician as an unreliable narrator would be great. I'm not totally sure that's what they were going for. See, and that's, I mean, I think I, I'm not sure how much of that were wanting that to be the case, hoping that's the case, yeah. wishing it was more than a passing mention, perhaps. Yeah, and there's a grand total of like four panels where it's brought up where he says, I'm no omnipotent sorcerer. I gained immortality, but no power. And so it's like, OK, wait, what? So the first 14 pages of this book that we spent that could have been spent on Zatanna or Zatara how much of that Did is still? Happen? How much? Is exaggerating a little or, yeah. All in all, it's an, an interesting concept, pretty well told, but needs work. <laughs> I wonder if some of that sort of ambiguity or uncertainty is just because of the creative change. This was something right. that we talked about before the episode proper, but this book was originally slated to be co-plotted by Roy Thomas and a guy named Jean-Marc Lafissier. And Roy Thomas was going to do most of the scripting himself. And then because of editorial changes to the Dr. Mist section and kind of the whole history of the Homo Magi, things that Roy Thomas didn't like that he thought were kind of uh, disrespectful to him for one thing because they didn't ask for his input, but also to E. Nelson Bridwell, who was the creator of Dr. Mist and the Global Guardians, that it really kind of rubbed them the wrong way. And that Lafissier guy ended up walking away from the book. He didn't want to write it. He still must have had magic on the brain because, as I said, he went over to Marvel and wrote a bunch of issues of Doctor Strange. And then Roy Thomas just, you know, just kind of had a, a plotting credit for the whole thing, but most of all the, the Zatara section. So maybe when they brought in the other plotter and the other writer, uh, Robert Lauren Fleming, 
maybe they weren't really in sync and they, and they mm-hmm. changed things kind of from the beginning or to the end. Maybe there was different writing involved and that's why the yeah, ending is so kind of, wait, what? How Did this happen or not? Mm-hmm. And uh, just in a little bit of reading about this, I saw a reference somewhere that originally the final reveal wasn't actually going to be Felix Faust. It was going to be, um, what was it? Wotan. Wotan. And I wonder if maybe that was why they spent so much more time establishing Felix Faust in mm-hmm. the past, that maybe that section would have been a few pages shorter right. and the ending a few pages longer. But because they, they had, had the, to establish the mm-hmm. character and what was going on with Felix Faust in order to have him at the end, it does sort of uh, smack of a quick rewrite. Yeah. Which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's still a, a pretty good, enjoyable story. And I, I, I think the other thing that gets dropped a little bit is this musical theme. That's what I was going to ask you about. It's a little bit at the beginning. There's like one panel at the end, and you know, it's the you know the the, the chapter headings or musical notations. Mm-hmm. But I think there could have been a lot. Maybe there was intended to be a lot more just references to the song and to, and, and that got dropped as well. Cause that sort of seems a little heavy handed because it, yeah, it comes and goes. It's when it's there, it seems a little out of place when it's not there. You wonder where it went. It seems like, like they're trying to give a soundtrack to the story, but not necessarily really connecting the theme of magic and music, mm-hmm. especially when you consider all of the explorers and inventors who they name drop as homo magi. I don't think they mentioned any classical composers, did they? Yeah, the, Wagner is the only one. And, they get and his, he's evil! <laughs> yeah. and, and they get his, his uh, famous song wrong. <laughs> they do. So, Yeah, I, I, I was wondering how you would feel about that, given your, your penchant for using classical music with your podcasts. Mm-hmm. But. Now, conceptually, I sort of like the idea of seeing mysticism and magic or God in the music, you know, seeing the concept of the creator revealed in his creations. And I do think that that was a, a missed opportunity, dropped ball, whatever reference you want to use for that. If I think that just that comes up short. Especially since by the time that we've figured that out, we've really sort of calcified that theme is literally the last two text boxes of the entire book where it says, mostly it taught me that man can create music only because man was first created by God, and when I hear the one, I see the other. And I was like, ooh, that's a really interesting theme, the end. Where was that the other 37 and a half pages? Because they have it set up with the the notations of the chapter headings. There was clearly a musical thing that was supposed to be stronger. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, that's the that's the conclusion. You know, you're reading the term paper. Yeah. And the student comes up with the conclusion, the and concluding you go, and you think, Oh, that would have been a great thesis. <laughs> yeah. I wish I, I wish would have loved that, to read that paper. I wish the paper was about that. <laughs> <laughs> the framing device, all of this makes I wonder if this was supposed to be in another book. Like I wonder if this was supposed to have been a Zatanna one shot or the start of a mini series or something. And these ideas just kind of got folded into the secret origin. It's a strangely structured story. Uh, it's certainly unique when you look at the rest of the. I don't know if any other secret origin kind of took this approach of having one long narrative that explains the characters. And later on, there's an issue that covers the the rogues gallery of the Flash. That's sort of like this, and that it's all one kind of uh, production. But- See, now I'm I'm starting to realize why you took this 
two-month hiatus <laughs> is because some of these Secret Origins ones can be a little frustrating. That that Warlord story we did a couple of months ago was a little frustrating. And, and you know, and, and this one, I I wanted it to be better than it was. It was good. It could have been very good. Right. You know, there's with obviously a, stuff there. With one more editorial pass or broken into two <laughs> or, issues. Or, based on what Ryan said, one fewer yeah. editorial pass maybe yeah. <laughs> maybe would have been. You know. And I think this is something that, Emily, that you were getting to. I felt like they were trying to create a new status quo for Zatanna and leave her in a new place. But I don't know what that place is by the end of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to, like, if there was some major catharsis or, or some sort of revelatory explanation about her powers or her worldview. I, I got nothing. So <laughs> I don't know how she's different from the, by the end of the story than she was in the beginning. All you really get is a confirmation by Dr. Mist of what I have been saying all along, which is that not to Zatara, but Zatanna is the greatest magician, the magician of magicians, mm. master of magic that I have always thought she was. So kudos. Certainly after Constantine got done with her. <laughs> hey, no. Well. <laughs> well, uh, let's use that as a nice little segue. What are some other stories or places, media, that we can find these characters? Well, we, uh, we saw again Zatanna and Constantine in Justice League Dark. I am a big fan of the first two trades. The first 12 or 12 14 issues. issues or so. Really, really good. After that, not quite as good, but the first... The first uh, few issues of that series are really great. And eventually at that one, Zatanna... Breaks up with John, kicks him out of the team, takes his spot as the leader, and gets his house. So I think it's only fair. Like, everything sort of (laughs) evened out in the end. That's that's a magical prenub right there. And in that case, wasn't it the House of... It was the House of Mystery who... Actually, actually she kicked out John, and then the house kicked out John. (laughs) Poor guy chicks these days you know what i'm saying ryan uh, yeah. okay exactly good answer good, <laughs> good answer good answer and uh, then also we are big fans of the unfortunately seems like everything's going to be ending in dc at uh, some point but we're fans of dc bombshells in, in alternate history 1940s pinup book in essence sort of a it's almost an else it's almost it's almost a tangent yeah, you know, to some extent, you're taking these names and characters. It's not quite to that extent. Also, what if, where you're you know, taking these characters, putting them in in totally different settings, and Zatanna is not a, a heavy presence in in those stories as 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 of the issues that have come out so far, uh, but she is a an entertainer, magician in in Germany, in, in Germany, mm-hmm. and she uh, travels around with her with her rabbit. Who smokes and uh, is actually John Constantine. Yeah, he shows up for about four panels before she blows his cover. He's He is a like an MI6 agent. She totally blows his cover, turns him into a rabbit, and he proceeds to be John Bunstantine for the rest of the series. Oh my god, I love that. It's amazing! Because <laughs> by the time she realizes that she's screwed up and like, wait a minute, maybe the Nazis are the bad guys? She goes back and he's got a mm-hmm. cigarette and he's just sitting in his cage smoking going, yep, told you! Oh, I want to read that right now. It's, 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 it's great. It's, it's, I mean, the, again, they are pretty minor characters in the, in the series. But overall, we like the series. Supergirl and Stargirl. You got Wonder Woman. You got Mira. She's hot. 
You've got uh, Batwoman and the whole, 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 just about every and female character has shown up in one way or another so and far. And Amanda in Waller. That. Yes, yes. In Hal Jordan's bomber jacket. <laughs> wow. She's pretty, she's pretty hardcore. Can I ask, like, about her, her proportions, like her size? Justice League Unlimited. Okay. It's short, short and chubby. It's the wall. Okay, okay that's it's, good. That's it's a it's a it's a great shot that a plane lands and just this wall comes out of it and goes. You will be signing up with me, ladies. Nice. <laughs> and then, of course, as we said, all those uh, animated shows that she was in in and out of. Yeah. Uh, Two trade paperbacks or graphic novels that I would plug for first is Black Canary and Zatanna Bloodspell. Uh, it's written by Paul Dini, who wrote some of those uh, Justice League episodes and the Batman the Animated Series one. He also wrote Zatanna's ongoing series that came out before the New 52 uh, that I will be reviewing on the first episode of Power of Fishnets. Uh, and then after that, if you can track it down, it's a collection of Zatanna's early appearances. The first one, her, her saga to find her father. It's collected as JLA Zatanna's Quest. And it has like her first uh, six or seven appearances. So, well, Professor Allen and Emily Middleton, where can people find you online if they want to hear more about you, more podcasts with you, or read more of your thoughts about these characters or others? Well, you can check us out at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, which is sort of the homepage for uh, our podcast network, Relatively Geeky, and that has our shows. The Quarterbin Podcast and Shortbox Showcase. And then we also have sort of a side project going called Dorkness to Light, dorknesstolight.blogspot.com. And that is a blog with an occasional podcast here and there about sort of the spiritual, religious side of some of these comic stories and pop culture. I really like Dorkness to Light. I had no idea Excellent. if, <laughs> if that would be up my alley, not being a particularly religious sure. or spiritual person. But the more academic approach that you take to the material, I've just been very, very happy. I love the Daredevil episode that you did. I like the Spectre episode. Uh, those are always a real treat to listen to. So great work. Great work. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Well, thank you very much one final time for being on this episode of Secret Origins. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. It was a blast. Episode 26 received Twitter favorites and retweets from Ange, Between the Pages, Birds of Prey Podcast, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Comics Couplets, Diablo Frank, Gabo, Greg Arujo, Jim at Jimfinity, J Slab, Carl Mercedes, Kyle Benning, Luke Dobb, Luke Giaconetti, Mario at Luther Lang, Nathaniel Wayne, Paul Hicks, Pietro Blaxamoff, love that name, Richard Field, Siskoid, Superman Cap Marvel, Sin, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, and Willie Yarbrough. Richard Field said, About time, I missed my favorite podcast. Over on Facebook, we got a comment from Legacy Brand Comics, who said, Binge listened to the show archives from the beginning, completed just in time to enjoy the newest episode. Looking forward to future episodes, as well as the rotating cavalcade of co-hosts. Congrats on your move to the Fire and Water Network. Thank you very much. 
Other Facebook likes and shares came from Abel Padilla, Al Sedano, All-Star Comics Review, Anthony Durso, Kane Dorr, Carlos Pita, Chad Bokelman, Charlie Crawford, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Damian Trotten, David Ace Gutierrez, Doug Miller, Earth Destruction Directive, Eric Wilkinson-Gilliard, Gene Hendricks, Greg Arujo, H. Daniel Reibolt, Igor Glushkin, Jason O. Logan, Justin Barlow, Keith G. Baker, Leon Bain, Max Romero, Michael Wagner, Nicholas Prom, The Quantum Cast, Rob Hopman, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Tim Wallace, Van Z, and Zeb Oswald. On to the website comments. Remember, people, if you want to leave a comment for the show, you can shoot me an email at ourdailypodcast at gmail.com or leave a public comment on the Secret Origins page of the Fire and Water website, which is at fireandwaterpodcast.com backslash secretorigins. The first comment came from Nathaniel Wayne, our friend from Council of Geeks and the host of 90s Comics Retrial. Nathaniel said, Great to have you back, Al. I'm glad you decided to throw Ryan a bone and have him join you on this one. Hmm. So this is what it feels like to get sarcastic comments. Well, this is no fun at all. Now I understand why Shag acts the way he does. Anyway, Nathaniel continued, Let's get to the real thing we all want to talk about. Miss America's skirt. Magical is an understatement. Looking at the cover, my first thought was, Are you guys sure that's a skirt? It's so damn short and clingy, I think it would have been hot pants length shorts with frilly edges. But nope, it's a skirt. So add, not flashing everybody within a thousand yards to her insane list of powers. The more I look at the cover and think about Miss America's so-called skirt, the more I think she's just wearing a shirt with a belt cinching the waist, and the red and white striped fabric is the bottom of the shirt. I mean, looking at the curvature of her legs and hips... There is zero coverage on the other side of the image. Siskoid, from Siskoid's blog of Geekery, as well as three podcasts here on the Fire and Water Network, Lonely Hearts, First Strike, and Ohatmu or Not, said, Always great to hear Luke Giaconetti on one of these, despite his misguided love for the Outsiders. Though, of course, loving Black Lightning isn't misguided at all. Only loving characters spawned in the Outsiders book. Uh, Siskoid commented on my use of the Guess Who's American Woman as the musical cue for Miss America, calling it, without a doubt, the biggest Canadian hit over in the States, which is ironic, really. Siskoid also mentioned how Miss America got both a secret origin and a Who's Who entry in the 1988 update, both of which would suggest that Roy Thomas or somebody at DC had plans for the character, but nothing ever came of it. Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water podcast and the Film and Water podcast said he liked the cover for Secret Origins 26. I know I'm partial to Kevin Nolan, but I think the poses are cool, and, well, Miss America is hot. Plus, I love the Secret Origins covers when the heroes are together. Uh, A lot of people commented that they liked the cover, and I don't dislike it. As I said on the episode, the cover is much more attention-grabbing than a lot of covers in the series, but there are a few distracting or bothersome qualities about it, that's all. Rob also said, Interesting that Greg Brooks did a tribute to Jim Aparo on the splash page of the Black Lightning origin, especially since Aparo was not involved in the character's creation. Uh, Actually, a couple of people picked up on the Jim Aparo influence of the Black Lightning art. It never occurred to me when I was reading it, but afterwards I went back and compared them, and yeah, it definitely looks like Greg Books was channeling Aparo in the close-up shots of Jefferson Pierce. It's one of those things, once you see it, you can't not see it. 
Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, I'll also associate Miss America with my beloved All-Star Squadron, issues 31 and 32. I'm not sure I ever cared for her subbing for the Golden Age Wonder Woman in the Justice Society, but then, I guess even Roy waffled on that. I appreciate Al's hard sell on the character, and his enthusiasm was infectious, but I think this may have been a case where Roy should have just started from scratch with a new origin. With only a handful of Golden Age appearances, there ain't much to be beholden to, and it's just plain nuts. I do recall reading about Roy wanting to bring in Moon Girl to replace the Golden Age Wonder Woman. She was co-created by Sheldon Moldoff, who had worked on the JSA via the Hawkman feature, so it kind of made sense. She was created by Bill Gaines and company as competition for Wonder Woman, but eventually her title succumbed to the declining sales most superhero titles faced in the late 40s. The title actually morphed into something like A Moon, A Girl, and A Romance, or something like that. Siskoid and company mentioned it on an earlier episode of the Lonely Hearts Romance podcast. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, I am also very partial to Nolan, so I love the cover. Miss America is gorgeous, and Black Lightning looks like Bruno Mars. Uptown Funk. You know, funny Ange mentions that because Uptown Funk was on the shortlist for songs for this episode. But ultimately, I had to go with something more black exploitation era, and Across 110th Street sounded too perfect. And I know Rob Kelly agrees with me, because he said it was the best exit music ever. Uh, Ange continued, Somewhere in my youth, I picked up Black Lightning number 1, most likely at a yard sale. As a little kid, I was floored by the dead teen on the basketball hoop. This wasn't a superhero slugfest ending. This felt real, about as real as comics could be for me back then. That image stuck with me as powerful, and it still is today. As for Miss America, that story is like a drug trip. As much as I love her look and her any power I need to end the story skill set, I'll take Golden Age Fury 9 times out of 10. I don't think I mentioned it when Al and I talked, but I really do love Miss America's costume. Regardless of who is drawing her skirt or how long it is, it's a simple, elegant look that works for the symbolic colors. If there needed to be a patriotic female replacement for Wonder Woman in the World War II-era adventures, I think it should have or could have been divided between Miss America and Liberty Bell. I like Miss America being used for that purpose, and I dig her appearance. I just can't get over her powers. They needed to be streamlined or defined. I, I don't like their transmutation powers for a Golden Age character. Even though it's explained as magic, sort of, it seems too science fiction-y age for the times. And what does any of that have to do with the Statue of Liberty? That led to Al Girding popping back in to say, let's use this episode to kickstart a Miss America revival. I want a movie in 2020. Uh, I think, Al, you're probably going to have to settle for rewatching Miss Congeniality, starring Sandra Bullock. And Al, by the way, hosts the All-Star Comics Review Podcast. You should check that out. Jeff Nettleton said, I first encountered Black Lightning in the DC House ads, where you saw the Afro wig with a mask attached. If there is one thing that disappoints me in this story, it's that we don't see the wig mask. I didn't actually read a Black Lightning story until he had a guest appearance in Justice League of America, where he turns down membership. However, the 90s series was the first that I read regularly, and an excellent series it was. Too bad DC and Isabella ended up at odds again, as he was really cooking on that book, some of his best writing. Tony Isabella is a vastly underrated writer, as he didn't have a ton of high-profile runs and tended more toward cult books, plus the editorial fights. 
His writing did a lot to turn Mike Gustavich's Justice Machine from a nice idea into a decent series. He had one of the few memorable Ghostwriter runs, and his Shadow War of Hawkman is a cult favorite. Of course, it, the Living Colossus, goes without saying. Does it, Jeff? Does it, really? Jeff continues, One comment from the perspective of someone who lived through the Bronze Age in regards to Luke's points about the era, there was a big movement toward diversity in the comics in the late 70s period. It wasn't unique, as there was a similar movement on TV. You get a lot of that on TV shows like Room 222 or the Norman Lear shows, as well as on things like Happy Days. Both in comics and TV, you have a lot of liberal writers who wanted to make some points about brotherhood and erasing stereotypes. Some succeeded better than others, while a few too many came across as patronizing and reeking of tokenism. To me, I find the Bronze Age was a little better at creating real characters, compared to some of the efforts in recent eras. Now, it often seems like the mandate is to include racial diversity for the sake of having non-white characters, rather than creating compelling non-white characters. Speaking of artist Grant Meehan, who did the Miss America story last issue and the Zatara pages on this episode, Jeff said, I get the feeling he was overwhelmed by Thomas's script. His Manhunter was okay, but kind of bland compared to Doug Rice. He had a brief stint at Dark Horse on Mark Verheiden's The American. That was following Chris Warner, who was also more dominant. Miam never seemed to find an A-game until the DC Impact line book The Legend of the Shield. He did a great job there on one of the central books of the line. Here, he mostly captures the period and delivers the odd goings-on with some sense of realism, even the wonky stuff, but it kind of looks like average DC for the period. Luke Giaconetti from Earth Destruction Directive dropped in again. In response to Ange's comment about the basketball hoop scene in Black Lightning Issue 1, Luke said, I read it when I was in my 20s and the basketball hoop scene shocked me as well. I did not expect it, especially not in a DC comic for a character who, at the time, most online fans simply ran down as, oh, isn't this old thing silly? It's so clear what Isabella is shooting for in this story, and of all the titles cancelled in the DC implosion, Black Lightning is the one which I lament the most. Also on the list is Steel, and the kinda but not exactly implosion title Beowulf. And responding to Jeff Nettleton, Luke said, I agree with your point about increasing diversity in Bronze Age versus today. Besides Black Lightning, I also defend Luke Cage, a character I got into initially because of same-name syndrome, but grew to love because of his curmudgeon attitude lines up with mine to a very real degree. And Shang-Chi, as characters who fit the mold of good characters who are of color rather than non-white characters. Of course, the Milestone characters also fit into this category, as well as Black Panther, naturally. Apropos, I am so excited to see Black Panther and Captain America Civil War. This is me talking, not Luke. Though, I imagine Luke is looking forward to it, too. Black Panther is my most anticipated superhero movie coming up. After the Fantastic Four collectively as a group, T'Challa is my favorite Marvel superhero. And I like Chadwick Boseman a lot, and I loved Creed, so I am really excited that they got Ryan Coogler signed on to direct Black Panther. And speaking of Marvel superheroes, we got another epic-length comment from Diablo Frank, who hosts the Marvel Superheroes podcast with Illegal Machine and Mr. Fixit. He also does the Idle Head of Diablo podcast, devoted to the Martian Manhunter, where he just released the second part of his 60th anniversary special for the Manhunter from Mars. People, you have got to check out these two episodes. Frank did an incredible, Herculean 
and most likely thankless job of combing through 60 years of publication history, gathering archived audio of creators talking about John Jones in comics, cartoons, and live-action television. He converted text pieces to audio. He did interviews himself with people like Peter David, Howard Chaikin, and J.M. DeMatteis. The whole thing is like four and a half hours long, part documentary, part oral history. It's really an amazing feat of podcasting that... I can't imagine will be matched by anyone for quite some time. And I heap all this praise on Frank as a precursor to saying how f***ing mad he made me last week. Frank is a champion of underrepresented characters in comics. Women, ethnic minorities, gays, trans, Martians, everything. So, you would think that when we cover the only black hero who gets his own featured origin story in this entire series that Frank would have something positive to say. But no, no, Frank can't love anything. Frank wrote 1,500 words ripping Black Lightning to shreds. I am not going to read those comments because I read them once and they made me so depressed I wanted to quit podcasting. Luckily, the other Fire and Water guys talked me down. But all of Frank's comments, as well as the responses from others, can be found at the Fire and Water website. Moving on... Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for Girls. Martin Gray, by the way, has never upset me. I love the man. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, I was with Black Lightning from the second issue of the book. DC debuts never seemed to reach the UK in the 70s and liked it as something different. His book felt like an extension of early 70s Lois Lane when she was curious black, fought the 100, and hung out in suicide slum with pals Dave and Tina. The origin is a bit dull. He should have got his powers in an accident, not a tailor's shop. Still, it gives him something to talk to Ragman about. Hey, shout out to Chad Bokelman's Ragman blog, The Suit of Souls. Martin continued, It's a shame Black Lightning didn't join the JLA back when it was good. He would have been spared the outsider's experience. I'd say the 90s era was his best, in part because of the Eddie Newell art. And Martin left a link to a review of Black Lightning issue 5 from the 90s series. This was right after the issue I mentioned that ended with Jefferson Pierce being shot by a student in his classroom. Issue 5 is all him recovering in the hospital, and the art is really incredible. We get a ton of flashbacks to different parts of Jefferson's life. The art style and the colors keep changing a little bit depending on the mood or upon the scene. It's gorgeous. Uh, I really hope the Black Lightning trade paperback sells well when it comes out, because I would love for DC to collect the 90s series too. It was only 13 issues, or at least finished publishing the run on Comixology. They had the first six issues, where's the back half? And the final comment for today, Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast said, No insights or wisdom, just glad this podcast is back. Summer hiatuses make no sense to me. Yeah, that's because you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you crazy Australian. I'm recording this while it's 11 degrees below zero outside. <sighs> okay, that is going to be it for this episode. Once again, I want to thank my magical guests, Emily Middleton and her father, Professor Allen. If you haven't checked out the Relatively Geeky Network or Dorkness to Light, you really, really should. They're awesome. And I also want to thank all of my listeners even Frank, who took the time to leave a comment or a response on the website, the Facebook page, or on Twitter. You guys are the real heroes. 
Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com backslash secretorigins or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Off the coast of Normandy, France, Zatanna walks through the rainy... Sorry, hang on. <laughs> Wife just got home, so the dogs have to greet her. So. Uh, you might want to as well. Just saying. <laughs> I've only been married 28 years, so don't listen to my advice. Only a suggestion. She's seen me before. <laughs> so has the dog, but evidently they forget. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Welcome. Welcome back. I missed you terribly. Did you? Yeah. I'm getting encouragement to greet you <laughs> from my guests. <laughs> she said, hi, guests. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I made the dogs bark. That's fine. Don't worry about it. All right. Uh, uh, back to the top. Okay.